Welcome everyone to the second episode of the Bejezel Podcast. Today I'll be interviewing Greg Gensky, one of the most famous agents in the business. Before we delve into the interview, here's a beat from our friend Wise Child. You can find his music at Sounds by Wise on Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to music. Thank you for listening. everyone to the second edition of the Bejezel Podcast. I'm Joe Buller and today I'm really excited to have Professor Gensky with me. Um, Professor, is the, Professor Gensky is the Executive Director, President, and Lead Negotiator of the Legacy Agency's Baseball Division. He's negotiated contracts for notable players that you've probably heard of like CeCe Sabathia for the Yankees, Hall of Famers like Ed Reed, and budding stars like Jameis Winston and Carlos Correa. Professor is also an alum of Bolt Hall and now teaches a one-unit course called Representing Professional Athletes. Um, Professor, I'm lucky enough to be in your course this semester, so I've been able to gain a little bit of understanding of your history and your path from being a Berkeley Law graduate to now being a leading sports agent. Um, For the listeners at home, could you describe that path and how you ended up in this field from starting off as a a lawyer? Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me on your podcast. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. And you can call me Greg. You don't have to call me Professor Gensky, although I do appreciate it. Um, I I took, I think, a very uh, unorthodox approach into working in the sports industry. I, you know, I I wanted to be a baseball player my whole life. And when that was not going to be a reality, I decided I want to be a trial lawyer. So uh, when I went to school here at Bolt, I was preparing to be a trial lawyer. And that was going to be my field of competition. Uh, and I was lucky enough to get some a great education here at Bolt and some great opportunities out of the gate, and that's what I did. I tried cases, um, and eventually that led me to sports in that I was able to represent in trial two of the leading sports agents uh, in the field in a matter that they were involved with with a former partner. Represented them for a couple years. We won a jury verdict, and after that, uh, went to work for the sports agency. So I think it's a little bit of an unorthodox approach. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it, my love and passion for sports, I think naturally brought me there and, and lent itself to me. Uh, but I think most people probably take a more direct mm-hmm. and uh, intentional route into the area. Right, so I think you know, for people like me and probably other students in your class, we owe, a lot of us have that you know, passion for sports at the root of us. And we're in law school. Um, so I guess for the students in law school right now, um, I, what would you suggest? Is it about cultivating a certain set of skills? Um, what would be that more direct approach that you kind of talked about, rather than kind of this roundabout way where you, you know, had a client and mm-hmm. then you kind of almost fell into the agency role? Um, what would be your advice for students in law school right now who would kind of want to, want to be on the same path? Well, first and foremost, I'd say learn to be the absolute best lawyer and professional you can be, because that's going to aid you in whatever Uh, whatever industry you end up in. Uh, Secondly, make sure you're always working hard. And what I mean by that is always working hard in learning for your education, working hard in the work projects that you have, uh, but also in working hard in terms of planning out your career, in terms of relationships, in terms of um, clients, future clients, taking care of existing clients. And I think that that gives you the opportunity to navigate your career in the avenues you want it to be in and where your passions lie. And if your passions lie in sports, you'll have those opportunities or certainly you can cultivate them. Mm-hmm. I think great things to do are 
probably some of the most obvious things, which is uh, interning for teams, um, serving whatever role you can to, to learn the business, learn what's important in the sports industry, what's important to the, the lawyers and other professionals that are practicing uh, therein and figuring out ways where you can use your skills, things you've learned in your education and things you bring to the table to make a difference, whether it's on the team side or mm-hmm. representing athletes individually. Mm-hmm. So that, I think that's music to our ears as law school students, that there, you know, there, is, a, there is a path uh, to get there. Well, a- absolutely, and I, that's one thing that I'm passionate in telling students about is I think that you know, when I was a student, I remember everybody is so caught up in how many students there are in law school and mm-hmm. how many lawyers there are. Let me tell you, there's plenty of opportunity there, and, and now I'm an employer. I can tell you that there's always, you're always looking for uh, incredibly smart, energetic people who are able to look at things from a different perspective and make a difference. Mm-hmm. So I don't think any student should ever feel like there's already too many people doing that. Or mm-hmm. there, There's always room. You know, once, you, once you develop your skills, you learn the space, and you figure out your angle and how you make a difference, you're going to have an opportunity. And, that's I would say always take control of your career, you know, mm-hmm. whether that's in law school or if you go work for a big law firm. I went to a big law firm and I still found a way to be a trial lawyer, even though everyone said you can't do that right. in a big firm. I did. So see, I think so. My background was in computer engineering, so I think that first first year when you go into the firms, everybody kind of wants you to do patent stuff. Mm-hmm. I think so. I'm I'm experiencing experiencing kind of figuring out how I can find my niche right now, and I feel like eventually it'll settle on the IP and the rights of publicity and uh, that aspect of the sports, but mm-hmm. I'm excited to see how it evolves, and it's great to hear um, your perspective on that. A question I always get if I mention to somebody that you know one day I want to be a sports agent or a client representative, you know, for athletes, um, they always say, "So you know, what are you going to do with your law degree?" You know, so I guess the question for you would be, how do you use your legal knowledge, your legal background, your legal education in the work that you do now? Well, I think the most simplistic answer is that the work I do now essentially is negotiating contracts and handling salary arbitrations for athletes. So there is uh, obviously a lot of relevance uh, with my legal background and the ability to read and interpret contracts and negotiate mm-hmm. them and to conduct salary arbitrations, which are like small trials, which is also, again, what my background's in. But I think the broader picture of uh, the, the legal education really taught me how to think as a professional. Uh, different than I, I, I believe, different than what you learn in undergrad and different than what you learn in a lot of masters or other advanced programs. It, it's really about teaching you a way of maneuvering in an uncertain world mm-hmm. to, to try to formulate a strategy and, and a result to reach and a roadmap on how to get there mm-hmm. where it's not laid out for you, there's no definitives and to deal with that environment and basically to make the best arguments you can and advance the positions as best you can because what you'll find out there is there's not a lot of certainty mm-hmm. and that's our job as lawyers or as agents or a lot of times just in business it is to come up with a strategy course that strategy and execute and I, my legal education taught me that right. i think i think that's the beauty of law school is that all these cases you read oftentimes they hinge on like a reasonable analysis or these kind of these nebulous laws that you, you're going to have to find a way to kind of craft the law to your facts. And it seems like that's one thing that translates from your legal education is that that uncertainty of what's going to be on the other end and figuring out how you can strategize and I guess making the uncertainty kind of your ally because you have that background and understanding of 
how you can navigate it. Absolutely. It focused us to not be just focused on the conclusion, but really be focused on the process. Right. And that will allow you to influence what the conclusion ultimately is, and so you can steer it to the right result for you and your business or for your client. Right. So I want to shift gears a little bit from you know, the law school discussion to you know, your role as an agent. Um, one of the questions I always have is um, this question about how do you build and maintain a roster of clients. Um, so I guess the first question would be at the high school and college level. You know, high school players can hire, um, hire agents. Um, so I guess how much does scouting play, in, play into what you do? Like are you as an agent on the road kind of you know, in these stadiums and figuring out who's an extraordinary talent? Because I, I assume like, you, you know, for the top five, top ten players, those are obvious. They're, like, they're in every single rankings, and you know you're aware of their um, skill set. But is, is there any of that element that comes into building the set of clients, or how do you go about choosing, choosing who you want to represent? Well, as an initial note, the, the most relevant thing you can have in terms of building a client base is an existing client base. Mm -hmm. So I was fortunate enough to start off as a sports agent already having a great body of clients right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you go in and talk to a high school player or a college player in whatever sport to be able to show them a stable of high profile clients that they look up to mm -hmm. who've entrusted their careers with you is a huge advantage. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, so th that's, and, and for a lot of times, especially people starting off, um, starting off recruiting, trying to get that first client so that they be, can become a sports agent, it can be a lot more difficult, mm -hmm. obviously. Uh, in terms of recruiting high school amateur players, it is remarkable just over my time as a sports agent over the last 14, 15 years or so, um, how much more attention amateur athletics has received. and you know, you're not going to find too many surprises these days. Mm -hmm. Most of the top players in any sport have been covered and covered for years before uh, they would be considered for a college, before they would be considered for a draft for a professional sport. And you have agents, financial advisors, a whole slew of professionals who are recruiting those players from a young age. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we as a company, we do uh, scout on our own. We mm -hmm. do, and, and I personally uh, will attend high school games, um, you know, college games certainly, right. um, but it, you know, it, it is certainly the case that the industry is well covered. So you, you're, you're going to have lots of information that's publicly available. Also, and I think I mentioned this in class, you know, we have, it's a small industry and we have relationships throughout the sport, whether it's baseball, football, golf, where you know, we're gonna receive a lot of great information from teams. Mm -hmm. uh, teams obviously employ a whole staff of scouts and so we, we receive a lot of information from teams. We receive a lot of information from the media that covers these sports, but we also do it in-house as well. All right. So it seems like you know at the high school and college level, kind of your reputation precedes yourself, precedes you. It's like if a baseball player sees that you represented CC Sabathia and Carl Crawford, they kind of know that and this is a reputable agency, and I want to be on that same trajectory. So that that helps in the recruiting process. Um, at the professional level, something I wanted to ask about. Um, what, what goes into a pitch for a potential client who's currently represented by another agency? Mm -hmm. um, so, how, how do you navigate that issue of um, the conflict of interest, perhaps? And kind of, you don't want to step on your rival's toes, but, um, but you want to you want to bring in this client who can enhance your business, enhance your portfolio. Well, I think it's no secret that the uh, the, the market 
as it relates to agents and recruiting top professional athletes is a very competitive one. Uh, and there's, there's lots of solicitation that goes on. So I think as an initial matter, you want to always make sure you're complying with all of the rules promulgated by the players' associations, whether it's baseball, football, mm -hmm. uh, basketball, et cetera. Um, that obviously is an initial consideration. But once you get that meeting and you've complied with the rules, I think you really want to take advantage of your time with that athlete to, to differentiate yourself, to let them know why the services that you offer are different and provide an advantage to that player relative to their current representation or the other representation opportunities that are available to them. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, um, you're going to talk about your track record, things you, maybe you've done for other players, but I always want to take advantage of this time to let them know that I've thought about this player. I've thought about their career, where they are, right. and I've thought about where they need to go, and I have a plan. Mm -hmm. Now, you may not agree with my plan, then maybe I'm not the right choice for you, but I think I have the right plan for you, and I want to talk to you about it. Right. And it seems like um, part of representing players is not just negotiating their contracts with the team, um, but those sponsorship agreements and people like Nike and Adidas calling you up. And for, for your well-known players, it seems like you know, those offers will come in on their own almost. Um, but I guess how did you learn how to do that, that business side of the sports as well, where for some of your players, you might have had to go and procure some of those sponsorships. Um, how, how does that come into play with your representing athletes' role? Um, you're right in that top athletes will always get approached uh, right. for endorsement opportunities, whether it's the equipment ones, a beverage deal, an automotive deal, et cetera. Um, but you really want to be proactive in terms of understanding what the client wants first and foremost, and then be proactive at reaching out to the companies and then you're going to be engaged in a negotiation with them especially for the top players where mm -hmm. it's not a foregone conclusion that the offer that comes in is something that is acceptable or appropriate to mm -hmm. the athlete you're representing and really a challenge in those deals is not is in getting a good understanding of what the market is you know mm -hmm. understanding what other athletes similarly situated are being paid or have been paid uh, where your client should fit relatively speaking where those Agreements are not readily available. For instance, if you're right. if you're doing a a major league baseball player contract, all of the comparables are available. Right. You know they're available through the players' association. That's a key part uh, is access to that kind of information that you don't necessarily get on the endorsement end, and you just need to be really diligent and make sure you get the best information. Right. It seems like you almost have a little bit more leeway in those those cases where you can kind of sell your client as he's, he's going to be a star, he's going to be a brand ambassador for you, and almost enhance their value because you can't appeal to those standards and norms. You have kind of more leeway to bring in a number that makes more sense to your client specifically. Um, Definitely. Uh, so I think one thing I wanted to ask about was, so we talked about how you build that roster of clients, but um, could you just discuss what goes into maintaining those relationships and that list of clients? Um, and it seems like the athletes are, sometimes, sometimes they have their entourage or their inner circle and that they can be very influential to their decision making and in their career trajectory. Um, how, how does that play into what, what you do? Do you have to be on the phone and assuring them that you're doing everything you can and that you have a plan and the vision? Um, how does that work in, in your work? Certainly, every, you know, every client that you have is going to have family, friends, entourage, if you will, uh, people close to them that are influential. Um, there's no question about it. 
the most important thing, obviously, is, is doing your job. Mm -hmm. You know, making sure that you're in front of every issue that the, that the client is going to encounter. Um, making sure you're in regular contact to make sure you know what's going on, not, not assuming you know what's going on, but in frequent communication to know that you're, you're on top of all of their business. And also making sure that your client is always informed and aware of all of the relevant things happening in their career. Like you're getting another year of major league service, one right. more year you'll be arbitration eligible. This is what it means when you are. The team is likely to do this. Um, the more you empower, the, the more you empower your client, the more you're doing your job. Your job really is to make sure your client understands everything that is going on and understands your advice and your plan and that you're on the same page. Those are, those are the most important things. Um, throughout the relationship, you're always going to have to deal with people trying to get the attention of your client because mm -hmm. odds are that he, that client, he or she is the most important person that all their friends and family knows and they're all vying for their attention. Mm -hmm. They're all vying to have a more relevant role. There's intense competition, the agents coming at them from all directions. And typically, the competing agent is going to try to just tell them anything that's different than what you're telling them to try to differentiate the advice, right? So you just want to make sure you're doing your job and always communicating, always educating, and always telling them the truth. Right. You know, it's you find a you know bullshit has a short shelf life, <laughs> you know. So if you know you you, you do yourself quite a, a service by doing the right thing by your client and being honest with them and educating them. Right. So you t you talked about the importance of preparation and being diligent with your client. And I think that kind of leads into our ne next topic, um, in the art of negotiation, especially in the context of representing athletes. Uh, in school, I'm taking negotiations this uh, this semester. And we talk about kind of the theory of negotiation. We talk about BATNA, which is the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, ZOPA, which is the zone of possible agreement. And all these kind of you know, acronyms and ac academic terminology guides the way we structure our preparation. Um, so I'm wondering what goes into you know, your negotiations, the real life context. If you're walking into a GM's office the next day or you have arbitration hearing for one of your baseball players, what does that preparation look like? Is it, is it a team of people kind of going through the numbers and setting the precedent and setting the arguments? Um, so, Yeah, there, there is a lot of preparation. At least that's the way I, I do my job in representing athletes is I believe in thorough preparation. I use a team, so I have a, a team of in-house uh, professionals in analytics and statistics mm -hmm. to make sure that I am the expert on everything that is related to my client and his services from a statistical standpoint um, and comparatively to, to other athletes. Make sure that I'm also meeting with my lawyers and other agents so that I'm, again, the expert on everything uh, contractual relating to my, my, uh, my client's services mm -hmm. in terms of what other players have signed, what they've signed for. Um, and then also, especially in the free agent context, is making sure that I'm the expert on the market. Uh, who, who are the alternatives available in the marketplace that are similar to the services my client provides or who could they acquire via trade as opposed to signing my free agent client to make sure I'm the expert in terms of all the team rosters mm -hmm. and what their needs are, what their payroll is, what their payroll limitations might be. Um, but I think it's essential before you get into the negotiating context that you are the expert on all these fronts and mm -hmm. that you are on the same page with your client, that your client is fully informed and knows everything that's going on. Right. The, the easiest way for things to go south in a negotiation is for somebody to get directly to your client and your client to have a different message than you have. Hmm. 
Because as soon as that happens, then all of a sudden you, as the agent representative, no longer have any credibility. Mm -hmm. So if your client doesn't understand what you're doing and you're not on the same page, all the work you're doing can be undermined immediately. Right. And I think you kind of you kind of mentioned the role of statistics and analytics and um, how how it influences your work. You know, we're here in Berkeley, the Silicon Valley, and it seems like um, you know the most important factor in a lot of our, a lot of our industries and a lot of our work is technologies, analytics, and advanced metrics. Um, I was wondering how how those affect your preparation as an agent, because um, I I think we kind of discussed this earlier how analytics can be a double-edged sword for an agent maybe, that at times you want to amplify the value of an analytic, that your player is so efficient and so, you know, the wins above replacement, you know, put them in an upper echelon of players. Um, but at times the analytics can kind of weigh against your player um, where you have to suppress the value of the, that analytic because your player has value outside of just that efficiencies number. He's clubhouse leader or he's, um, you know, a leader for the team on the field and off the field. Um, so, how does how does that the the numbers and analytics and advanced metrics, and maybe even the role of technology, how has that changed your practice? Because I think you started in two thousand four at the legacy agency, um, and it seems like since then has been the wave of the smartphone and all these other innovations and social media. I guess how does how does that factor in um, to your role now? The well. All information can be valuable in the negotiation because it helps form our arguments. The arguments that we advance either in trying to negotiate a deal or in trying to win an arbitration on a salary. Um, analytics, uh, advanced metrics, whatever you want to call them, have certainly emerged in my career since I began um, as a very powerful avenue of making the arguments you need to make. Uh, as an initial matter, making the arguments because you know that this is what the teams are relying upon now in determining what they need in a player, what they value in a player, and why they value it. So if you're trying to generate interest, enthusiasm in your player, you need to speak that same language mm -hmm. as a team. And in fact, I say you need to speak it better. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to be someone that the team looks at as a resource because you're seeing things um, in either a different way or an enhanced way than they're seeing it, it makes their analysis even better. So you want to be engaged there. You want to be engaged in um, rebutting any arguments you might receive from the team, whether it's in the arbitration or negotiating context that diminishes your player. Right. You want to make sure you put your player in the best light right. at all times. And so you, you really need to speak that language and um, you know be prepared to make those arguments, whether it's in the salary arbitration context or in the free agency context. So you, you just talked about you know, putting your player in the best light. And I think as, as fans, of, uh, fans of sports in general, a lot of the way we perceive athletes is through social media and through these you know, uh, sports journalists who report on things and things like that. Um, so how does the, the role of media in interacting and building those relationships um, factor into your work? It seems like you have to balance, you know, um, you know, building that trust with them, but not allowing them to go too far with information that you might give them, so you can always um, make sure that your client's being represented in the best light. Absolutely, the media plays a very, very important role in the business of sports. Um, they are, typically speaking, um, long-term relationships. You know, with with people you have in the media over many years, and you work with. Um, with them on many different players. First and foremost, for me, uh, I'm you know I'm an old school lawyer, so 
I keep my client information confidential. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not one who believes in sharing much with the media. They're certainly going to ask. They're always going to ask because they have a job <laughs> to do, an important job, mm -hmm. right? And they want your help. And so sometimes strategically, you know, it might be an advantage for your client to put some information out there. Sometimes it might be okay to help out a writer so that they can do their job and without jeopardizing anything with your client. But the first consideration always is uh, what's best for my client and you know, the, the rule is always to keep things confidential, not to share them. Um, the important thing to also consider is that the media is looking for relationships, not just with agents, but obviously they're close with the executives and, and every team in the sport. Mm -hmm. um, so and it's a, it, it turns out it's a very small business, you know, whichever sport you're in, it's a very small circle of professionals that are involved. And so uh, there's a lot of repeat business and you know, a lot of professional respect and courtesy that needs to be provided. Right, so it seems like you have to balance, because the business is so small, you're going to keep crossing paths with you know, the same media people, and they, they have influence for other teams. They can discuss your players or you know, down the road. You kind of want to build, maintain those, those connections, and it seems like a little bit difficult to navigate, but uh, it's a crucial role to being an agent, it seems like. Yeah, and that's what you want to do. You want to, you want to balance your desire to help out somebody in the media to do their job, um, and, and also you recognize that they can help or hurt you or your clients down the road. Right. You know, so you, you wanna you wanna always do what you can, but first and foremost is remember you got a client, you know. And right. so respecting your client's confidentiality and protecting your client's interests first is always paramount. Right. So I think we we've kinda talked about, you know, the broad overview of being an agent, you know, negotiations, representing clients and deal, interfacing with the media and the role of analytics. Uh, wanted to get shift gears a little bit and get into the I guess the nitty-gritty of some of the actual sports, um, starting with the NFL. Um, oh, so, sorry, starting with the MLB, actually, uh, and the free agency system in baseball. Uh, you, you talked about in class how baseball uses a service-based system. You know, it's rooted in you know labor law, and that kind of influences a lot of how their free agency works. Um, for the listeners who don't know, could you describe how how free agency works in baseball? Those years of arbitration and the years of um, free agency after that yeah, absolutely and you, you 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 have it right you remember it well from our discussion in class it is a service-based system which is uh, certainly rooted in labor law uh, baseball players are selected in the draft after being drafted and getting something which I would submit doesn't remotely approach their true market value mm -hmm. um, they are the property of one organization um, they don't have another meaningful opportunity to make money until they're promoted to the major leagues, which is usually two to several years after the draft. Uh, once they're in the major leagues, the only rule is that the club must pay them at least the minimum, um, which is about 535000 mm -hmm. They usually give modest raises over that. And then it requires three years, or at least very close to three years of major league service before you're arbitration eligible. Mm -hmm. And that's when the subject of the player's salary can be submitted to a panel of arbitrators to determine it and is subject to negotiation and the player sees significant raises. But it takes six years of major league service right. before the player actually gets to free agency. And that that is where the player derives his leverage mm -hmm. uh, to negotiate lucrative contracts or contracts, as we would like to say, that might approach the fair value as to what their services should provide. Right. And I think fans of other sports always look to baseball and say, you know, wow, these guys are getting paid so much in free agency. But I think you kind of mentioned part of the reason why, because it takes six years for them to just enter free agency. So 
that that pool of available players is always you know, so limited and suppressed, um, which leads into my next question, because it because it takes so long to get that free agency, get that payout. Um, it seems that players would be seem to seem inclined to kind of ex- accept an extension. Like if a, if a team says, you know what, we're going to offer you five years, twenty million in your third year of arbitration. So you might be getting paid the minimum salary, and you're getting this five year, twenty million dollar offer. Um, even though you might be projected to get a huge offer once you reach that sixth year and you become a free agency, um, there's an incentive to kind of sign long-term early on. And it, as your role as an agent, how do you how do you navigate your players' concerns? Because you know that you can perhaps maximize their salary at a number that's much greater than they're being offered, but you have to balance their concerns of you know the hometown preference and maybe family security and things like that. Um, so how, how do you go about advising your clients on balancing um, that in baseball. Yeah, that is one of the most challenging jobs uh, of an agent for players in Major League Baseball, is and it's a constant um, education process, and it affords teams a tremendous amount of time to kind of wear a player or his agent down in terms of agreeing to a multi-year deal, to be opportunistic in the timing, whether a player is going through a slump or coming back from an injury. Um, so it, it is being vigilant and constantly reminding your, your client of their worth, what their true value is, what it's going to be as we get through the service time. And unfortunately in baseball, we don't deal with a lot of uh, injuries that are gonna disrupt that future. Mm-hmm. It happens, but fortunately we don't deal with it as much as we do in other sports. Uh, so being vigilant, reminding your player that we're getting there, you're on the right track. Um, when you get to arbitration eligibility, you're going to make these significantly increased salaries. When you get to free agency, you're going to make this money. And also reminding them that even if you want to do a multi-year deal before you get to free agency, you are going to be in a vastly better position the closer we get. Right. You know, so playing out those initial years as opposed to taking the, the guaranteed money early oftentimes is in the player's advantage. And you just got to be vigilant. It's right. not easy. I think some, another thing interesting that came up in class, you know, because because of the service nature of baseball, a lot of the contracts have performance-based bonuses that are based on you know, service. Um, it's like maybe a player has to play 160 games and they get a bonus, or mm-hmm. 30 starts, or things like that. Um, something we discuss in class is, you know, sometimes maybe a team's out of contention and they decide, you know what, we're going to bench this bench this player, and maybe they were five games away from triggering that bonus. Um, do you see that that is a is that a legal issue that can be litigated in the future? Or you know, is that something that teams are purposely doing? Or is it just something that's the natural um, result of you know, the ebbs and flows of a season? Well, I think that we've seen many, many examples and for many years now of teams uh, manipulating players' playing time to avoid bonuses, uh, manipulating service time to prevent players from hitting arbitration eligibility or free agency. Uh, as early as they should. Uh, So I I think we've seen this many times. The question is, is it a litigatable issue? It would be a grievance issue. It would be an issue that you would file a grievance with, um, basically arguing that the team has violated the collective bargaining agreement. And really it's by operating in bad faith, by not not proceeding under the terms of the Mm -hmm. contract and the relationship in a good faith manner. Um, So whether or not it can be properly addressed through a grievance, I think remains to be seen, Mm -hmm. especially as it relates to service time manipulation. Um, but I think ultimately, I would like to see it as something that's addressed at the collective bargaining table mm-hmm. uh, between the players' association and the team. I think that's the 
the best, most effective way to deal with it and, and kind of put this, this issue to rest. You know, so it's, it's fascinating to see the difference between you know, the different collective bargaining agreements and the way free agency works across sports. Um, so moving to the NFL, um, something we discussed in class is how the NFL almost doesn't even have a true free agency um, because of the team's right of first refusal, uh, the team's ability to put a franchise tag on players. And it almost you know, brings down the value of a star player um, because oftentimes they're not able to reach free agency. And those players who reach free agency um, may be mediocre and there's, they're purposefully allowed to enter into the market. Um, could you discuss, I guess, the the NFL CBA and how how that affects your representation of NFL players? I know you, J- Jameis Winston is coming up as a free agent, but the CBA is expiring, and that might create some you know, issues in negotiating that. Yeah, un- unfortunately, the NFL does not have um, as favorable free agency rules as Major League Baseball does have. Right. Um, so you. You know, and again, free agency is the the key piece of leverage you look for as uh, an agent representing players. And the NFL, you don't have it for the reasons you mentioned: uh, clubs' right of first refusals, and then the ability to put franchise tags on, which uh, effectively neuters any free agency rights. And that's where we do see the anomaly, like uh, superstar players getting paid rough, roughly similar to mediocre players. And I think the example I used in class was I represented Ed Reed, who is. Mm-hmm. One of the best safeties in the history of football, one of the best defensive players in the history yeah. of football, who was facing the same situation with his team, threatening the the franchise tag on him, and you know essentially agreeing to a contract uh, that we were happy with. We're, but we we would have had a lot more strength if we had true free agency in football. And then you had a safety like Adam Archuleta, who's a fine player, but nowhere near the players. Ed Reed came along with less, but a comparable contract right. because his team didn't value him enough to, to put a tag on him. And so he had real free agency. So you have the anomaly where uh, the superstar players do not have the right to free agency and lacking that leverage, they end up having deals that more closely resemble mediocre players. Right, so I'm, I'm a big fan of basketball. So I'm thinking of in the NBA context, it seems like a similar thing happens to star players in their relation to the, medi- uh, the mediocre level players. Uh, because of the max salary placed on the star players, like you get 35% of the salary cap, I think it is for certain superstars. Um, but the fact that there's a max placed on those uh, those players um, ele- elevates mediocre talent. Some, somebody I mentioned was Chandler Parsons. You know, he's I think he played 10 games last season, but he was being paid at his maximum possible salary. Um, so I guess it's interesting to see all the differences between all these leagues. And I guess the question to you would be, which system do you think actually works most in favor of the players? Um, in baseball, you have the service-based systems where it takes six years to get to free agency. In football, you mentioned the lack of true free agency. And in basketball, there's a kind of a cap on how, how much you can make if you're a superstar. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess what would be your perspective on those differing natures of free agents? I, I would have to say I think the... Major League Baseball system uh, works best on behalf of players. I think there are many ways in which it needs to be approved. Um, however, I think it is vastly superior to football, and I think it's even superior to basketball as well. Okay. So sh- shifting gears a bit um, to the NCAA and amateurism. I know, you know that's always a big issue in how the NCAA handles certain things, especially legal issues. Um, one rule specifically I wanted to ask you about um, Rule 12.5.2.1 declares ineligible any person who, after becoming a student athlete, either 
accepts any payment for use of his or her name to promote a product or service, or receives payment for endorsing a product or service. Um, so one example I was thinking of, and somebody I discussed with a few of my classmates was LaMelo Ball. Um, so LaMelo Ball is a 16-year-old player for Chino Hills High School, I believe. He's committed to UCLA, even though he's in high school right now. And his father is LaVar Ball, the founder of Big Baller Brand. And they recently released a shoe, I believe it's called Mellow Ones. They used LaMelo in all the advertisements. The, he's the namesake for the shoe. Um, I, what kind of issue would this cause for LaMelo with the NCAA? Yeah, no, I, I think it certainly is going to trigger some close scrutiny by the NCAA. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be difficult to maintain that outside revenue model um, while he is a a college student participating in college athletics. I think on its face it would seem to be pro prohibited un- under the rules. Right. And so another point regarding the NCAA, recently I think they passed a rule that allowed high school baseball players to hire agents essentially. Yeah. Um, but in for if you're a college baseball player, you're only allowed to have the advice or counsel of a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, how, how does this rule affect you in practice, where let's say you're representing a high school play, player who's, high school baseball player who you're their agent, you're representing them. They get drafted, and then they forego their chance to go to the MLB, and they go to college. So and how does your contact, do you maintain that level of contact? Do you just you know, assume that they're gonna come back to you once you know, they, get, they join the MLB? How do you navigate that odd little distinction that the NCAA has created? Well, it's odd, no question about it, and I know there's been a lot written about it, um, and many people think it's uh, it, it's an unfair system and, and potentially one that violates other laws and, and, and areas of, of practice, certainly regulating the conduct of practicing lawyers as one, as the Andy Oliver case referenced. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from the practitioner standpoint, we're forced to deal with it. We're forced to deal with it because we are here to protect and serve our clients and protect their interests, which include preserving college eligibility. So we want to make sure that we uh, we understand the distinctions between when an amateur can have an agent versus an advisor and what the limitations on each of those roles is and to make sure we comply with it. Um, and certainly it adds layers of complexity to the relationship, uh, but it doesn't, I don't think it really changes things in that our job is to do everything we can to advise um, the amateur athletes we work with, uh, make sure that they have all of the information and that they're able to make the important life decisions that face them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but certainly the NCAA and its rules is not seeking to protect the same interests we're seeking to protect. Right, and it seems especially hard in football, I think, because in baseball you can get drafted out of high school. In basketball you kind of have alternative options. You play overseas or you, know, you forego your the college experience but in football it almost seems like the NCAA is too big to fail in a way because there is no alternative right. um, so I guess why don't you just gauge your perspective on that um, do you think that there'll ever be an alternative option for NCAA football players I've heard a lot of different ideas uh, about creating different options and I would tend to believe it's a possibility I would think it can happen but I also I also share uh, you know, the belief you stated about it being an industry that's too big to fail because it's hard to argue against the popularity of NCAA football. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a behemoth sport in and of itself, um, but you, you certainly see the vulnerability and the avenue for challenges when it gets into NCAA rules, um, denying advice of counsel to, to top athletes who are looking at having 
prospectively very lucrative careers, um, the fight over pay for play. Uh, so I think there are a lot of issues which threaten uh, the viability of NCAA football. But having said that, it it, it is such a behemoth industry that it's, right. it's hard to believe they can't figure those out. Mm-hmm. I would tend to believe they probably can. So I've taken you through an obstacle course of different topics, NCAA, MLB, NFL. Um, so going into our final segment, um, so we have two, two, two things that we want to make a tradition through the, with the Bejezel podcast. Uh, one would be war stories, mm-hmm. um, which allows, I guess, the practitioners and the lawyers to kind of talk about one particular story that was interesting, complex, or humorous, and the future, future of the industry in general. So whichever, I guess, opening up the floor to you after I've um, kind of guided you through all these topics so far, um, opening up the floor to you, whichever one you would want to take on first, war stories and the future of your industry, which is you know, sports, um, sports and client representing. I think the future of of agents who represent professional athletes is going to be a vibrant one. It's going to continue to grow and expand as the sports world continues to grow and expand and continues to be more and more profitable. Um, There's going to be even more of a need on the behalf of professional athletes to have competent, highly skilled representation. Mm -hmm. Um, As the business of sports continues to grow, expand, and be more professionalized. Right. And then on, on the, the point of war stories, I guess, any anything you want to share? You've represented some of the biggest clients. You know, you represented C.C. Sabathian, walked into, I think, Brian Cashman's office at the time. Um, Ed Reed, you mentioned, and Ozzie Newsom is, I think, the Ravens general manager still. Um, any Anything you want to discuss on that perspective? I, I yeah, I mean, I, I love my war stories, and sometimes I'm accused of... Uh, talking too much about them, I guess. But since you asked, I guess probably some of my favorite war stories were early in my career when I was greener and still kind of mm. trying to learn. And And I represented a, a, a very unique individual named Manny Ramirez. Mm-hmm. And he presented uh, challenges to me every step of the way. And I, I think as I've, I'm older now and I reflect back, I think a lot of it was him just challenging me and seeing how far he could get <laughs> me to go. But it, it was it was definitely fun, you know, having to uh, fly out to his home and drive him to spring training every year. Otherwise, he wouldn't go, and it, it was uh, that that was always a lot of fun. So I look back fondly on my memories representing Manny Ramirez. All right, Greg. I think I think that concludes our list of topics for today. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you to the listeners. This is the second edition of the Bejezel Podcast. Look out for future episodes and follow us on Twitter at Bejezel. Thank you very much. Thank you, Greg. Well, thank you very much for having me. Nice talking to you.